This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everybody. I've learned that giving Dharma Talks, half of it is Dharma logistics, having your glasses, having the Dharma Talk the right font size, having your glass of water. So it's really nice to be here today and to look out and see so many faces of loved ones and people I've practiced with through the years. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's kind of strange to be on this seat instead of on that seat. But I'm really grateful for all the people who practice here and who love and care for this center. And I really appreciate everybody coming today so that we can have this talk together. For me, it's really a homecoming, and it feels really lovely. And for those of you who don't know me, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a native Texan, but I live now on this magical island called Whidbey Island off the coast of Seattle. And it's been quite an interesting journey to get from here to there. I've had to let go a lot of who I think I am which is a native Texan with a deep addiction to chili con queso from Mati's and long neck beers from the Hula Hut deck. <laughs> but before my husband and I moved away from here, I lived in Austin for several decades. And you can tell I'm an old timer because I'm one of those people who talk about what it was like before the traffic was terrible and the real estate was expensive. And like some of you, I imagine, I... Um, went to the University of Texas and just never left. So I have deep roots here and long-standing friendships with people. But it was during my years here in Austin that I was first introduced to meditation, um, first to Tibetan Buddhist meditation and then to Zen. And it's a little hard to believe that a girl born in Houston, Texas, raised as an Episcopalian and who pledged Pi Phi at the University of Texas <laughs> would ever consider shaving her head or sewing a rakasu. <laughs> sewing a rakasu, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I met my first Buddhist teacher at a meditation workshop at a place called the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. I see a lot of people shaking their heads. It's really a beautiful place on Highway 1, south of Carmel, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's not a Zen center, but it's an institution committed to the human potential movement. And it's better known for its clothing optional hot tubs and the body workers who train there and who give great massage. Just to clarify, I did not meet my first Buddhist teacher in the hot tub. <laughs> but in all fairness, Esalen is just below Tassajara on the coast, so it's not in the mountains. But I really do think they share uh, the same source for all those healing waters that help us. I made my pilgrimage to Esalen with a group of friends who were therapists, and that should have been my first clue that it was not going to be my usual vacation to the beach with the People magazine. And to tell the truth, we were all part of a therapist book club. And I'm sure that brings to mind large volumes of Freud or Jung, but actually, we were reading Sogil Rinpoche's Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, a Buddhist book. And in that book, Rinpoche says that in order to know the nature of your own mind, you have to find a teacher. 
specifically a Dzogchen teacher. Now, Sogil Rinpoche himself was indeed a Dzogchen teacher, trained in the Tibetan tradition, and he lived in England, so he was a little bit out of our reach. But the next week, one of the therapists came in, and she was waving the Esalen catalog, and she said, I found a retreat here that is led by a Dzogchen teacher named Lama Suryadas, so we're all going to sign up and go learn about the nature of our own minds. I thought it was going to be a weekend, not a lifetime endeavor, but I signed up, and I pictured that I was going to be sitting with kind of this withered, old, white-haired Tibetan teacher with speaking broken English. And what I got was this huge American Brooklyn jock <laughs> with a New York accent. And I told myself on first sight that this was not someone that I had anything in common with that at, at all or who could teach me anything about the nature of my own mind. He was as foreign to me as someone sitting on a mountaintop in Tibet would have been. But during that week, something shifted in me, and it was more than just my attitude. During that week, I came home feeling nourished. And that's what I want to talk about today. Meditation practice as nourishment. I'm not sure that any of us seek out the Dharma because we're holding the goal of nourishment. Usually we find our way here because we're suffering in some way. We're going through a difficult time in our relationships or our lives, or maybe we've had a sudden health crisis, or maybe we just want to better control our minds. And I was definitely in that club of I want to control my mind, the control freak club. But this story about Esalen is important to me because I know myself, and I don't think that I could have come through any other Dharma gate than that week at Esalen at that time with my friends. At that stage, I was a single mother. I was anxious. I was emotionally reactive. I was overwhelmed and overcommitted and overstressed. And uh, basically, I was a mess. I know it's hard by looking at me today. (laughs) But how in the world was I going to be able to sit still and meditate? But the, the wise Lama had an answer. The first thing he told us when we arrived was that he wanted us to go to the hot tubs and sit and soak for 30 minutes before every meditation session. And he also encouraged us to take advantage of all the massages that are offered at Esalen. And he didn't get any resistance from me on those two points. I may have had a few questions about Tibetan silent meditation, but when it came to head to toe Swedish massage, I was right on board. So when I did finally show up to meditate for the first time, I was a warm, melted puddle of humanity. And all I had to do was sit down on my cushion, close my eyes, and follow the directions. I knew that I was a convert, if not to Buddhist philosophy, at least to the practice of relaxation. So one might ask, what does relaxation have to do with discovering the nature of your own mind? And I would say, from my experience, it has everything to do with discovering your own mind. At the time I visited Esalen, I was holding tight to ideas about who I was. I had judgments about other people and really strong opinions about everything else. I was trying really hard to control my life and myself and everyone around me just because 
I needed to survive. But to be perfectly clear, it wasn't working, and I was not a happy camper. In Buddhism, we affectionately call this ego clinging, and relaxation can be the first step in loosening up that stranglehold that we have on ourselves. But in the beginning, like many other people, my goal, my meditation was goal-oriented. So there was like me here, the teachings over there that, of course, I intended to master 100%, and the result over here in this corner that I wanted for me, which was calm, peace, comfort. But it was definitely over there outside of me, not over here inside of me. So I know I'm kind of describing myself as a train wreck during this period of my life, so it may surprise you that shortly after that, after meeting Lama Surya Das, I decided to enroll in graduate school and get my credentials and become a therapist. And Esalen is also instrumental in that part of my story because several of these therapist friends that I'd gone to the meditation retreat with were studying a model of psychotherapy called Hakomi, Its founder, Ron Kurtz, just happened to teach a workshop that year with another therapist colleague of his, Dick Schwartz, the founder of the therapeutic model of psychotherapy that Mako was talking about, internal family systems. And I figured, well, I'll go, and if I don't like the workshops, I'll just sit in hot tubs. But these two men were, like um, Lama Surya Das, they were to become really important teachers in my life. I became really intrigued with Hakomi and its emphasis on the embodiment and power of loving presence. And I was also immediately drawn to the internal family systems model and its theories about how rich our internal world is, about our parts, and about the potential for healing all of that inside of us. And these models resonated with what I was already learning about myself in my meditation practice, that I wasn't all good and I wasn't all bad. But I was really a neurotic, mixed bag of nuts with a very warm heart. Some of you may know these models, and if you don't, I encourage you to look into them. And there's a whole community of internal family systems therapists here in the Austin area who are trained for anyone who might want to go deeper I was one of them. Don't let that hold you back. For those of you who haven't heard of IFS, which is the abbreviated name for Internal Family Systems, I'd like to take just a moment to describe the model and some of its principles. For some reason, I always seem to talk about IFS when I give a Dharma talk, and I think it's because it's so intricately woven into my spiritual life now. But also I think IFS is important when we're talking about relaxation and we're talking about nourishment. So internal family systems is a model that describes our inner world not as an individual, separate, concrete identity, but more as a fluid collection of parts that are in relationship, much like a family. Sometimes, like in a family, the parts get polarized, we call it in the model, or they get in conflict. And they fight with each other to take over our inner world and to lead it. 
And so I like to give the example that's pretty simplistic, that I have a part that's a little kid that likes to eat chocolate, but I have another part that's a critic that will shame me if I eat chocolate. And these parts struggle with each other, and they take up all the space inside, and they create an internal world of dualistic conflict. Of course, the chocolate example is really a simplified version of this, but I think everybody can follow that one. The model itself is much more complex and nuanced, but the important point here is that it's, an, it's just essential to look inside and develop self-awareness and to ask, who's running the show in here? And who do we want to run the show in here? And why is everybody fighting in here to run the show? <laughs> and at our very core, who are we? So the IFS model has an answer to that, to that, and it proposes that underneath all these parts and all these internal dynamics at our very core, all of us are pure, loving, and compassionate awareness. We just get covered up by these parts. IFS calls this awareness self with a capital S, and it points to it as our true nature and as a source of innate wisdom, clarity, and nourishment that we can trust to lead our lives. Buddhism calls it our Buddha nature. But all those burdened parts of us that carry our wounds, they work so hard, and they hold reactive thoughts and feelings, and they worry about the future, and they regret the past, and they get activated and stirred up and they take over our internal system and they exhaust us and they block our access to our self-energy. So Lama Surya Das's teacher and my teacher, Dzogchen teacher, Nyosho Kempo, says this. We exhaust ourselves in three ways. We create fabrications like mental concepts. We exert a lot of effort. We create many objects in our minds. These are the three things that really tire us. It's like an insect getting caught in a spider's web. And the more agitated it becomes, the more tangled it gets in the web. This creates real suffering, real torment for the mind. At this time, I was a poster child for exhaustion. My parts were constantly triggered and fighting. And I had a hard time meditating because all of this chatter inside took up all the space, and it took a lot of effort to try to quiet everybody down. During meditation, and you may um, identify with this, I always had a part talking about my body. My knees hurt. My legs are falling asleep. I need to move around. And then my critic would chime in. Stop wiggling around. You don't know how to do this. Look at everybody else. They're so peaceful. Will you be still? And then there are all the dull parts that take over and just want to zone out or fall asleep or they're sitting there wondering, when is the bell going to ring? (laughs) So inside, I was very much like the harried mother that I was outside, chasing around or pushing away, one thought after another. Pema Chodron, a really wonderful, warm Buddhist teacher, everybody's nodding their head, uh, points out that so many different kinds of things can arise when we're in meditation. And our basic attitude should be, no big deal. I would add, no big deal with 
relaxation, affection, and a welcoming heart. If we cling to our parts in meditation or in our lives and we think of them as really good or really bad, then we're just adding extra suffering on top of what's already happening. IFS and meditation taught me to allow everything and anything to arise, to be curious and loving towards it all, and to embrace everything with our self-energy. Because self-energy, our true nature, our Buddha nature, is nourishing, is healing. So when we bring it into relationship with our wounded parts, they are replenished. Again, Nyosho Kempo describes it best. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace. I have one more quote. (laughs) Profound and tranquil, free from complexity, uncompounded luminous clarity beyond the mind of conceptual ideas, this is the depth of the mind of the Buddhas, In this, there is not a thing that needs to be removed, nor anything that needs to be added. It is merely the immaculate looking naturally at itself. Nothing to be removed, nothing to be added, not even my parts. In fact, I discovered my parts like meditation. They like to rest in natural great peace. There was nothing I needed to do or change. Our inner world, my inner world, may still be crazy and noisy and totally unworkable and totally insane. The meditation may be raucous or peaceful or drowsy. All we have to do during meditation is relax and enjoy the show with an open heart. There's a saying, and I'm sure you've all heard it, that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I've been really fortunate to meet many great teachers. And I don't know if that says something about my readiness or something about my state of mind. But about the time that I was exploring internal family systems model and in my meditation practice, I met another wonderful Buddhist teacher named John McCransky from Boston, who's a professor of comparative theology and Buddhism at Boston College. He introduced me to a practice that... I'll share today with those of you who attend my afternoon workshop. He called it the benefactor practice. You could also call it bathing in self-energy. Through guided meditation, we remember and consciously bring to mind people from our lives who have expressed the wish of love for us or who have touched us in some way with a small act of kindness. Often when those moments happen, We take them for granted, or we overlook them, or we forget them later. But in this practice, we intentionally remember them, and we bring them to mind. And more important, we acknowledge and gratefully receive their love for us. We take it in. And it's a funny thing about self-energy or Buddha nature. Self-energy in one person can often evoke self-energy in another person. So in this practice, we allow the self-energy 
of the benefactors to relax us, to nourish us, and to open us, and to reconnect us with who we really are at our core. So I began to experiment with this benefactor practice and IFS together, and I would bring to mind my benefactors and rest in the energy of their wish of love for me, and then begin to extend this love inside me to parts of myself that were suffering, and then eventually outside me to parts of other people that I recognized were suffering. And gradually, my meditation practice began to transform from a kind of efforting practice where the problem was here and the solution or goal was over there and I was working really hard to accomplish it to a more relaxed kind of meditation that was non-dual of just being love. Granted, when you're doing the benefactor practice, you are doing something but you're doing something in the service of helping your parts to relax so that you can rest in your true nature. So over the course of doing this practice daily for some time, something important opened in me. In Tibetan Buddhism, our teachers admonish us not to talk about spiritual experiences openly because they call them yams in Tibet, which means... um, It's just a temporary arising. Don't take it too seriously. And we're not encouraged to run after them or talk about them with anyone else because um, you can trigger in someone else the idea of, like, why isn't that happening for me, you know? Or skepticism, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to share a little yam with you today because we're talking about relaxation and nourishment, and I feel that something deeper and really more unconscious relaxed in me. While I was doing the benefactor practice one morning, a very Dzogchen type of self-inquiry question arose in my mind. Who is it that's doing the nourishing? And who is it or what am I nourishing? Suddenly, all my IFS concepts about parts and self fell away, and all that was left was this ground of loving energy that loving presence that Ron Kurtz first taught me about in Hakomi. I was both the nourisher and the nourishee in that moment. As Ram Das says, as you dissolve into love, you're not thinking about loving. You're just being love, radiating like the sun. And it's true, because self in parts, lover and person loved, all these concepts imply a subject and an object, duality, some kind of boundary or separation between us. But nourishment and love somehow relax these concepts that separate us and point to a different reality. When we rest in that love, we can begin to heal some of the pain and loneliness that comes from clinging to a separate ego. So recently, I guess it was February, I went to Houston to attend a retreat with my Zen teacher, Tenshin Reb Anderson. I know some of you know him. In a Dokasan discussion, <clears throat> I confessed to him that I was having some difficulty in a couple of my relationships, and I wasn't sure how to break through the impasse. And Reb advised me, remember that they are in you, and you are in them. 
I think about that comment now whenever I do the benefactor practice. My benefactors are in me, and I am in those to whom I send the wish of love. The hard boundaries between us break down, and I can connect with the ground that's holding us all, spacious, boundless, warm, and compassionate. I can forgive myself. I can forgive others. So I invite any of you who are interested in exploring some of these meditations to join us today, this afternoon, in the workshop. We're going to be practicing some of this and discussing our experiences. I suspect and I hope it might be nourishing. In the process, my hope is that you might discover a shift in your relationship with meditation too. Rather than being an activity that we think we should do, like exercise or healthy eating, Meditation can become something that we joyfully take up as a path to find our way home to our true nature. So right now, in my practice, relaxation has become a really important word. I'm trying, and I guess that's an oxymoron, to do less and simply relax and follow my heart. Trust my heart. I think we're all suffering from a heightened pace of life. We're stressed. And it does take an awareness and a real conscious effort to try to slow down. But there are really good reasons why we should. In his book, Buddhist Standard Time, my teacher, Lama Surya Das, says, it's been theorized that cognition narrows through making haste. And also, as the speed of life increases, ethics become a luxury. Think about that. Can you imagine a world where ethics become a luxury? It sounds to me like a world where we all lose our connection to our self-energy. But that's how I was feeling, that I'd lost my connection to self-energy when I first stepped foot on Whidbey Island. At the time, I was feeling somehow distant from my self-energy. My life was moving really, really fast. I had a full psychotherapy practice. I was traveling as a trainer with the IFS model. I was trying to wisely parent my son, the hardest of all. And I noticed that my parts were really reactive and they were getting triggered more and more. I wanted to live more consistently from my heart, but the pace of life here seemed somehow part of the problem. With hindsight, I'm not sure that's true anymore. I think the issue is that I couldn't relax in the pace of my busy life. But in that state of mind, my husband and I arrived on Whidbey Island, and as I said earlier, it was a spiritual journey from here to there, and I want to share a couple of stories about that with you. When I met my husband, he was living in the Pacific Northwest, and ironically, we met at an IFS training. I really didn't want a long-distance relationship, and I told him so. So he agreed that he would move to Texas with the caveat that when my son got old enough to go off to college, we would have some sort of a footprint in the Northwest. So we took lots of birthday and anniversary trips and vacations to the Northwest, and I was always drawn to Whidbey Island, and I didn't know why. I'd say, I want to take a ferry ride. Let's go over to Whidbey Island. I want to take a drive. Let's drive to that little town on Whidbey Island. Because there's a peaceful energy there. First of all, it's an island, and it's surrounded by the ocean, and the whales migrate there every spring. And there are bald eagles and ancient forests, and the place just oozes of Buddha nature. 
It was nourishing me. So we spent several, several vacations on the island, and then we decided to look at property. And we thought we were just going to buy a summer place and that we'd be commuting back and forth to Texas. But once we bought a place and landed there for a summer, I got a phone call from my teacher, Lama Suryadas, and he said, I heard you've moved to Whidbey Island, and I want you to know that there's a Dzogchen teacher there in our very specific Nyingma lineage with the same teachers as me. And his name is Keelan Rinpoche, and he's young, and he speaks English, and I think you should look him up. So I looked him up on the web, and I discovered that he has a weekly meditation practice, and I decided to just show up. It turns out Keelan Rinpoche is precisely the teacher I need right now in my life and in my practice. I consider it a total mystery how I found my way to him, and also a blessing. I wasn't seeking a new teacher, but I was longing to reconnect with my Dzogchen practice and that spaciousness of self-energy, true nature, Buddha nature, whatever you want to point and call it. Rinpoche's teaching me about the power of relaxation, and in fact, he's written a book, if you're interested, called The Relaxed Mind. <clears throat> and I'd like to read you a quote. <clears throat> to not do <clears throat> can be a challenge. You could also call it an adventure. I think it is well worth taking on this challenge because the simplicity we derive from it is the perfect antidote for the stress and anxiety of our busy lives. Busyness that leaves us so involved and overworked that we don't have time or space to know ourselves and feel our feelings. With all of the complexity of our lives, we don't really get to know the reality of our so-called personal existence. What is the nature of our minds and who is experiencing all of our thoughts and feelings. We don't get to know the reality of our true existence. So Keelan Rinpoche has never heard of IFS, but I did once hear him talk in parts language. We were at a retreat, and a woman raised her hand and asked a question. She was really charged and angry, I could feel her energy. And she asked Rinpoche why we should be sitting on a cushion when so much suffering was happening in our world. And she mentioned the recent school shootings and the riots in St. Louis. Shouldn't we be doing more? At the time, I felt like she was assaulting Rinpoche with her energy, but he just compassionately nodded his head. Yes, he said very gently, there is so much work to be done. But let me ask you a question. This part of yourself that's so upset, can you feel its energy? The woman took a moment, she nodded, and she said, yes. He said, do you think this is really the best and wisest place from which to take action? And the woman was quiet for a moment, just kind of taking in the loving radiance of Rinpoche. And then she answered quietly, no. I think I understand. I also understand the woman's position because it's true, meditation may not directly solve our social problems or even our personal ones, but it can return us to our own loving ground that innately knows what is kind 
and skillful in any given moment. So can healing parts work with a therapist that connects us to self-energy. Because in the end, the wisest and most powerful motivation for action, it needs to come from our loving and compassionate heart. So I think you can tell that I've been blessed with relationships with many wonderful teachers, Lama Surya Das, Ron Kurtz, and Dick Schwartz, John McCransky, Reb Anderson, Keelan Rinpoche. They are my benefactors, and I've experienced their loving presence whenever I'm with them. And what they've taught me is that love is my nature, too, and yours, your nature, too. There's nothing we need to do to create it or earn it or improve it. We simply need to relax and embody it. It's, it's a homecoming, coming home to your true self. And like the time I've spent with you today, homecomings are really rich and nourishing. And I realize this when I look out at all of you and see your faces. I realize that I am in you and you are in me. So I want to end today with one of my favorite poems from Hafiz. I know the way you can get when you've not had a drink of love. Your face hardens. Your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eye, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. Even angels fear this brand of madness that arrays itself against the world and throws sharp stones and spears into the innocent and into oneself. Oh, I know the way you can get if you've not been drinking love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for hidden clauses. You might weigh every word of theirs on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure from every angle in your darkness the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get if you haven't had a drink from love's hands. That is why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God so you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. That is why Hafiz says, bring your cup near me, for I am a sweet old vagabond with an infinite leaking barrel of light and laughter and truth that the beloved has tied to my back. Dear ones, indeed, please bring your heart near me. For all I care about is quenching your thirst for freedom. All a sane man can ever care about is giving love. So thank you so much for allowing me to be here and share love. I have some time for questions or comments, or sharing, or relationship. Yes? Yeah, can you share some of your experience with 
Well, I can't um, share with how it's related to koan study because I haven't really done koan study, but I think Hakomi teaches us a lot about not knowing rather than knowing and brings us back to the present moment, takes us, helps us um, come down from our heads into our bodies. And I think this is just a projection. Like I said, I haven't really studied koans, but I think koans do that too. Koans, you can't figure it out up here. Loving presence is really about right here, right now, you and me. Hakomi taught me that. Just before you read the poem, you said that there's nothing we really need to do to earn love, to own our love, to experience and to feel our love. But is there something we need to do, or perhaps not, to pass that on? I think... We're passing something on in every second. How we are in every second with every person right here can be a teaching. Like I said, we're not all bad and we're not all good. Self-acceptance and self-compassion goes a long way towards other acceptance and other compassion. They're related. They're relational at the deepest level, and they're not different. They're not separate. Does that help? Does that answer your question? I think so. I'm willing to explore it more if you want. To play that back to you, what I'm hearing is, to use my own words, what we need to do to pass it on is just to live it as fully as possible within ourselves. To embody it, I would say, yeah. It's it's tricky, and I've heard my teachers say this, it's tricky, this engaged Buddhism, because it depends on where it's coming from. We can have parts that are so well-intentioned, and they can still do damage because they have a partial view of the situation. There, it's me over here trying to fix something over there. Yeah. So we have to be really self-aware of our motivation. I really learned that as a mother. I love my son with all my might, but it's so easy to project my view onto my child more than anyone else instead of just being there and letting the wisdom arise on its own in the relationship between us. I hope that's helpful. How did your son deal with your move to Whitby? And where is he? Oh my gosh. I don't know if I can answer that and stay relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) How much do you want to know about me? (laughs) How transparent do I need to be today? My son is in Washington State. He moved there with us to attend Evergreen College in Olympia. And he went for two years and then he stopped. 
He's living right now in um, Portland, but we are taking a break. <laughs> Somehow I feel like that's a failure, but we are taking a break because we, we tend to get into parts wars with each other. And I know he loves me, and he knows I love him. He's in me. I'm in him. He's my greatest teacher, and he's struggling. And as a mother, it's really, really hard. Um, I have parts. What you need to do is fill in the blank. Would you like my opinion on this? So I'm learning, and I'm not perfected. But I'm happy to share with anybody who asks later what I'm learning. I don't think I'll do it to the whole group. I won't. I'll spare you that. <laughs> yes. Let me ask a different way. I, I, I'm a parent of a couple teenagers, and I would like to pass on this kind of wisdom to them, but can't get away from that dynamic that you mentioned. You know that. Well, yeah. What I would say is part of it is you, and part of it is them. You can't control the them part. You can control the you part. And you can try to more consistently learn about what it is that puts you in a part with your child, that where you don't come from spaciousness, but instead you come from reactivity. And by embodying that, they'll begin to get curious. I mean, my son, he knows I'm working on all this, and he respects that. Um, and I'm hoping that because of that, someday he'll, he'll want to do that work himself. He doesn't want to right now. He just He's sort of in that. He's blended with the part that wants to blame the world. But I just I do this benefactor practice with my son, too. And that's what Reb was saying to me. You know, there are other ways. We have ideas about what it means to, how do I leave this to my child? There are other ways. And you might explore that, too. Thank you. Great question. Yes? Thank you for being here. It's um, very heartfelt and warm, and it's um, a wonderful experience. Thank you. Um, we've been talking about mind and, and um, this concept of faith and trust, uh, which is a little bit, you know, different thoughts about that in Buddhism. And I wonder if you could talk about your experience with faith and trust in this, this in your experience. Sure, that's a great question. Well, what comes up in me when you ask your question is the word trust. Um, because as a therapist, I noticed a lot that the fundamental, um, the fundamental exploration I found myself doing with many of my clients is that they don't trust their life. And I can understand that because we are living in the world of samsara and bad things happen. And any of our parts, I know from myself, any of our parts that try to control things have really um, well-meaning intention. They're trying to protect us. But even the fact that they're trying to protect us shows us that there's some parts in there that don't trust our lives. Um, it's a great place to work in yourself because what you can trust is your self-energy. You really can. And life is bringing, in my experience, in my experience only, my life has brought me things that if I relate to whatever it is, good or bad, from my Buddhist practice, then I will get curious and try to use it as a way to call forward more self-energy. 
it doesn't always work. I mean, I'm just like everybody else. I'm a mixed bag of neurotic nuts, but I do trust my self-energy. And I want to say you can too. And that I believe all of life is self-energy. So I have trust and faith in that. And it's samsara. We cannot, as hard as we can work to be skillful and, as you were saying um, on the first row, take action, we are not going to perfect samsara. We can be compassionate with each other. It certainly can be improved. But when we get in this dualistic relationship with life, it's not the same as resting in self-energy and being wise. Yes? So I keep thinking about the sort of difficulty of accessing self-energy when you're feeling fear or vulnerability or you're feeling that people around you. And I'm just wondering if there's practice that you utilize or because that often seems to separate off. That's when you're most protective. Yeah. And ironically, when you're most protective, you often become the most disembodied. Totally. You got that part. <laughs> You've got the suffering part, yeah. Well, it's, you know, in Dzogchen they say our thoughts and our feelings are like clouds in a clear sky. And that's a very absolute view um, and also a very truthful view. But when the clouds are there, uh, there are a lot of things you can do. Uh, One is to work with a therapist to understand what burdens your parts are carrying, what the fear is about, and really get curious and go into it to, uh, for the purpose of releasing it to be more free. The other thing you can do um, is to see through it. It's that Manjushri sword they talk about where you cut through and not for the purpose of getting rid of your parts. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't, I, that's, Dick Schwartz says um, the mistake that Buddhists often make with their parts is like pushing them away and saying, I don't like this part. We don't want to do that. But there are times when we want to say to our parts, step back and let my self-energy lead. Give me some space. And we can learn to do that. You can learn to do that in therapy, um, but also you can learn how to go into it, listen to it, understand why it's afraid, help it unburden put it in relationship, your part with your own self-energy. We can't do other people's work, but we can hold them in self-energy when they're triggered. So that's what I would say. Is that helpful? Good. So you can see, you know, I'm sort of this weave of Buddhist and IFS therapist and crazy human being that we all are. So... Thank you for letting me be here in my fullness of being today.